It is my joy to welcome you to today's podcast. Our prayer is that the Lord will minister to you in a special way during our time together. A joy to be with you again today and to be able to share with you as we're entering into this wonderful season of the year, the Easter season. And I think I told you last year that to prepare my own heart, I like to go in my devotions, go to the Gospels again, and to read those portions that are leading up to Jesus' final days here on earth, his coming to Jerusalem, the encounters that he had along the way, and of course, his death his, and his resurrection. Pastor Balson started last week by telling the beautiful story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And because of that very dramatic miracle, the people in Jerusalem, the crowds, were looking for Jesus. If you go on down in that chapter 11 of John, where he was speaking from, you go to verse number 56, it says this, they kept looking for Jesus. It was the Passover time. The temple courts were crowded and they were looking everywhere. Where is he? Uh, Isn't he coming at all? Actually, Jesus was on his way, but he was on a mission. He was searching for lost sheep. I want us to note two one-on-one encounters that Jesus had on this last journey to Jerusalem. You find the story of two men in the Gospel of Luke. Both were equally anxious to meet him. In fact, the scripture says they ran to meet him. In fact, I've entitled my message this morning, Running to Jesus. However, what a contrast we'll find between these two men. The first was a young man with great potential. He was respected in his community. He had some ruling office. We don't know what, perhaps a ruler of the synagogue. He was moral and religious. He was earnest and sincere. Surely he would have qualified for membership in any church. The second man was equally anxious to see Jesus. He also ran to see him. He even climbed up in a sycamore fig tree to catch a glimpse of Jesus as he passed that way. This man, however, was not a respected member of society. He was one of the most hated men in the town of Jericho. Luke described him as a chief of the tax collectors. He was a man who had become incredibly wealthy at the expense of the people of the town. Interestingly, both of these men were very rich. Let us look at their stories and see how their, what they did and how they responded to their encounters with Jesus. First of all, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18. And the story of this young man starts in verse 18. But I am quoting the verse of the same story. It's actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three Gospels. Mark says it like this. As Jesus started on his way, and I've added the words to Jerusalem, that's where he was going, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life? Seems like a very spiritual question, doesn't it? However, in spite of all of his fine qualities, this young man had a very, we might say, superficial, superficial view of spiritual things. I want us to look at the view, the way he was looking. First of all, his view of Christ. I read it there in verse 18. He called Jesus good teacher. Now, it was very unusual for a rabbi to be called good. The Jews only allowed the word good to be applied to God. So that explains why Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? He asked him that. No one is good except God alone. If this young man really believed that Jesus was good, then he had to confess that he was God. By asking this question, why do you call me good? Jesus wasn't denying that he was good. He was testing the young man to see if he really understood what he was saying. But I want to look at his view of sin. Jesus pointed the young man to the law of Moses. It's there in verse 20. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. He did not uh, hold the law up to this young man as a means of salvation. Because obedience to the law does not save anyone. But he wanted this young man to see himself as a sinner before a holy God. I think there's such an interesting illustration in the book of James, chapter, chapter 1. It starts at verse 22. He says that the law is like a mirror. And you can look into the mirror. And it shows us how dirty we are. But the mirror doesn't have the power to clean us. It only shows us like we really are. So Jesus held, held the mirror of the law up and this young man looked at that mirror, but he would not. He refused to see that there were any stains or blemishes in his life. Listen to what he said. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. Undoubtedly, this young man was sincerely trying to keep the law. Sadly, he measured obedience only by external actions, not by internal attitudes. As far as he was concerned, his actions were blameless. His view of salvation. He thought he could do something to earn or to merit eternal life. We read it there in that first verse, verse 18. What must I do? This was a common belief in the day among the Jews. I think it's still a common view today. Most unsaved people think that God will one day add up their good works and their bad works. And if the good works exceed the bad works, they will get into heaven. Matthew records this young man's next question. What do I still lack? Jesus answered this young man's question. It's there in verse 22. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. 
Jesus put his finger on the one thing that was not blameless about this young man. He was covetous. He knew the young man's heart. He asked him to do the one thing a covetous person would not do, sell all that he had. Nowhere in the Bible are we taught that a sinner is saved by selling his goods and giving the money away. Jesus never told Nicodemus to do this when he came to Jesus by night, or neither to any other sinner whose story is recorded in the Gospels. Nobody is saved by giving all his wealth to the poor. But nobody can be saved who will not recognize that he is a sinner, repent of his sin, and turn away from them. Jesus knew this man loved his wealth. By asking him to sell his goods, he was forcing him to examine his heart and to determine his priorities. The next verse, verse 23, gives the young man's response. When he had heard this, he became very sad. I I like the way Matthew expresses it in his gospel. When the young man heard this, he went away sad. He went away away because he had great wealth. With all of his great qualities, his good qualities, this young man still did not truly love God with all of his heart because possessions were his God. He was unable to obey the simple command, go and sell, come and follow. When Jesus gave him something to do, He refused to obey. Had he really believed that Jesus was God, he would not have argued politely about the law and bragged about his character and then refused to obey Jesus' words. Sadly, the young man wanted salvation on his own terms, not God's. So he turned and he went away sorrowful, when he could have gone away with great peace and joy. I know the heart of Jesus was also grieved. Mark, in his record of this story, says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. How sad he must have felt as he looked at that young man and said to him right to his face how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus had expressed it very clearly in his Sermon on the Mount when he said, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus continued on his journey after that sad encounter with this good young man. I know I've read this portion before, but to me it's such a, a gripping Uh, thought of Jesus sharing this with his disciples. I'm reading from verse 31 there in chapter 18. He took the 12 aside and he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him. I mean, he gave such a detailed description and kill him. On the third day, 
he will rise again. And then this very telling verse 33, no 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. You know, some of the crowds were following Jesus because they thought that he was on his way to Jerusalem to uh, deliver Israel from the Roman bondage. They were excited about that. Others were following to see the next miracle. Before they reached Jerusalem, however, Luke includes a beautiful encounter. This is another story of a lost sheep and a loving shepherd. Jesus was still seeking to save the lost only a few days before his own crucifixion. For this story, we just keep right on going. We're down now at chapter 19. And I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Actually, the name Zacchaeus means righteous one. Rather ironic because this chief tax collector was anything but righteous. Not only did he collect taxes from his own people, but he worked for the despised Gentiles. Jericho was a border town and people entering had to pay duty. And he was notorious for collecting more taxes than required. Of course, everyone hated him. Though he was a traitor in the eyes of the Jews to Jesus, he was a precious lost sinner. Interesting to me that his whole claim to fame here is he was wealthy. But how beautiful we'll see the changes that Zacchaeus experiences the day he met Jesus. What happened to Zacchaeus that day? First of all, a proud man lost his dignity. Let's read verse 3 and 4. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. In the east, it's unusual for a man of his stature, a dignified government official, to run down the street. Yet Zacchaeus did, and not only ran, he climbed a tree. He, I, why, I don't know why he was so curious. I think he must have heard about Jesus. Who was this man? Why were all the crowds here? What am I missing? There was something that drew him that day to see Jesus. And I do think, thinking of losing his dignity, that more than anything else, I think it is pride that keeps many successful people away from putting their trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Spiritually speaking, all of us are like Zacchaeus. In the, in the King James Version, it says he was little of stature. Here it says he was short. Romans 3.28 says this, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us measures up to God's high standards. We're all too little to enter into heaven. The tragedy is that most sinners think they are big. They measure themselves by man's standards, money, position, power, popularity, things that are of no value in obtaining eternal life. Not only did a rich man 
lose his dignity, but a seeking man was found. Look at verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus thought he was seeking Jesus, but Jesus was actually seeking him. I love that picture of the seeking Savior. You know, by nature, no sinner seeks for the Savior. I I remember Adam and Eve, the very first, our first parents. What did they do when they had sinned in the Garden of Eden? You read it in Genesis chapter 3. They hid. That was what The nature of man was like. They hid. It was God who came seeking for them. And he looked in the cool of the evening. Where are you? But I love, you know, that Jesus, he knew Zacchaeus' name. He'd never met him before. He looked right up and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. I love, I'm, I'm laughing. I'm thinking of our children's song that we sing. And, you know, we, we always do those motions. I just want to assure you today, beloved, Jesus knows your name. He knows you personally. He cares about you. But not only did he know Zacchaeus' name, I find this so interesting. Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus's house. That was certainly not the custom of the day. It's it's not our custom even today. I mean, just think how you would feel if a total stranger walked up to you to sit today and said, I must come to your house today. Uh, we would say, excuse me. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, that's not, not commonly accepted. This is actually the only instance in the four Gospels of Jesus inviting himself to someone's house. But I do think it illustrates those beautiful words of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Yeah. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I'll eat with that person and they with me. He was giving that beautiful invitation to Zacchaeus. I love Zacchaeus' response. So, verse number six, he came down at once, hallelujah, and welcomed Jesus. He did not waste any time. I don't talk about dignity. I can just imagine that that little man scurrying down out of that tree. By now, everybody's looking up and watching. And uh, I don't know what actually um, prepared the heart of Zacchaeus to respond so quickly, but I love that. He did. He came down at once. He invited Jesus to his house with great joy. Now, we see the reaction of the crowd. Next, verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. (laughs) Though the people criticized Jesus for visiting a tax collector's house, he didn't pay any attention to their words. He knew that those same critics, they needed to be saved themselves. But we never see any evidence of them putting their trust in Jesus that day. Another thing that happened that day, a greedy man was transformed. This is an amazing verse. You know, there's no record here in the book of 
uh, Luke, what Jesus said to Zacchaeus, don't you? I find that interesting. But we certainly see his amazing response in verse number eight. Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Wow. All I can say is this was a happy day in Jericho for more people than just Zacchaeus. Just think of all the people that he owed money to. Wow. Or that he had taken extra money from. Should have been a happy day. But the beautiful thing is that Zacchaeus was ready to obey the Lord. He wanted to do whatever was necessary to establish a genuine testimony before the people of Jericho, before his community. Now, it's interesting that under the Mosaic law, such a severe or, uh, you know, heavy penalty was not exacted. If you read the book of Leviticus chapter 6, it talks about if a thief voluntarily confesses his crime, he had to restore what he took, add one-fifth to it, and then bring a trespass offering to the Lord. That was his payment. So it would be roughly about 20% probably of what he had taken. Only if he stole something he could not restore, for instance, he stole a sheep and slaughtered it, couldn't give it back, he had to repay that fourfold. But I, I just love it. Zacchaeus, he didn't quibble over the terms of the law. He just offered to pay the highest price right off the bat for everything because his heart had been truly changed. I will pay back four times the amount. He was determined to set it right, to make it right. Now, I, I need to say this. Zacchaeus was not saved because he promised to do good works. He was saved because he responded by faith to Christ's gracious word to him. After trusting the Savior, he gave evidence of his faith by promising to make restitution to those whom he had wronged. I, I just love that big if. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, he knew, he knew he had cheated lots of people. But he was just saying, doesn't matter who it is, how much it is, I'm going to repay the amount. This is a beautiful example, isn't it? Saving faith. It's more than just religious devout feelings or pious words, long prayers, true confession of sin, genuine saving faith result in a changed life. This is what we see. But another beautiful thing happened that day. A poor man found eternal riches. I love this verse. Jesus in verse 9 said to Zacchaeus, today, hallelujah, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Though people considered Zacchaeus a wealthy man, he actually was, he was only a bankrupt sinner who needed to receive God's gift of eternal life by trusting in Christ Jesus. He became a true son of Abraham. That means a child of faith like Abraham. 
The New Testament clearly explains the true riches we receive when we become children of God. Most importantly, we are given eternal life. If we believe we receive him, we receive eternal life and an eternal home in heaven. But I want us to think for just a moment about the riches we receive. I love the way Paul expresses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It hasn't even entered into the human mind. We haven't conceived of the thing that God has prepared for those who love him. To the Ephesian church, he wrote, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And this beautiful phrase, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Isn't that beautiful? Riches lavished on us. A poor man became rich when he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What a different ending to Zacchaeus' story than the one of the rich young ruler. When a day begins, you never know exactly how it will end. But for Zacchaeus, that day that he encountered Jesus ended in joyful fellowship with the Son of God. For he was now a changed man with a new life. What a contrast with the rich young ruler who refused to part with his riches and he went away sorrowful. The rich young ruler may be the only man in the Gospels who came to the feet of Jesus and went away in worse condition than when he came. In spite of the fact that he came to the right person, he asked the right questions, and he received the right answer, he made the wrong decision. The rich young ruler is a warning to people who want a Christian faith that does not change their values or upset their lifestyle. I think that's such a danger in today's world. We want a religion. We want a salvation that fits my desires, what I want. Jesus does not command every seeking sinner to sell everything and give to the poor, but he does put his finger of conviction on any area in our lives that is taking first place or taking his place in our affections, in our time, in our finances. I want to say this to you today, beloved. Jesus is still seeking the lost. Has he found you? If you have never received the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never believed on him as your Savior, you can do it today. Confess that you're a sinner. Ask for God's forgiveness. Promise to serve him for the rest of your life and to obey him. But I'm sure there's many of you here today that know the Lord Jesus. You belong to his family. I just want to 
ask you today as we enter this Easter season, will you just examine yourself, each one of us, to see what truly has first place in our hearts, in our pocketbooks, in our time. I want to close with the final words that Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus as recorded there in the book of Luke. It's verse 10. Actually, what a touching verse this is. In this verse, Jesus states his entire life mission as clearly and concisely as he ever states it anywhere in the Gospels. He says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I want to say that when we have an encounter with Jesus, he gives us a passion for his mission. Not the things of this world, but a passion for the loss. As a pastoral team, we have begun praying for a harvest of souls during this Easter season. Will you join us in prayer for this mission? May I suggest just two simple things that I think we can do that will help to make this happen this Easter season. First of all, simplify your priorities. Our priorities must be the mission of Jesus, reaching the lost. I know there's a lot of things that press in on our time, that uh, we have our jobs, we have our families, we have so many things, but let's put Jesus first this Easter season. Prioritize your Simplify your priorities. And secondly, let reaching the unreached cost you something. I'm always challenged by those that simple exclamation of Zacchaeus, I'm going to pay four times more. It may cost you something, beloved, to make the lost your mission, but I believe the eternal rewards will be greater than anything you can ever imagine. And I just pray that God will bless each one of you. Let us pray. Father, we just lay at your feet today. We want to say, Lord, your will be done. May it be done in my life. May it be done in my priorities. May it be done in my mission. Father, that you will be first, your kingdom will be first, the things that drove you to come to this earth will become the things that become our passions. We pray for that. Bless your church today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless each one of you. Thank you for taking time to listen. If you would like more information about our church or would like to make a comment, please mail us at info at newlifeag.in. God bless you.